Cannabis Business Minds, we train and mentor professionals, entrepreneurs, and aspiring entrepreneurs on how to confidently find their place in the legal cannabis and hemp industries. Come on and join us at CannabisBusinessMinds.com. So today with me, I have Casey Lieber, who is the Director of Compliance here at Vicente. Um, We are a law firm that is based out of Denver, and we are in the Boston office Um, Casey, thank you so much for being my guest today on our podcast. Happy to be here with you, Jen. (laughs) I'm so, I'm so glad. I love talking compliance with you. It's so much fun. It's riveting. So Casey, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and how you got to Vicente and and how you really got into compliance? Sure. So before I was at Vicente, I was at Creative Services, a background check company, and I was the director of compliance there where I oversaw background checks that were being completed by cannabis businesses on their employees. And we also worked with the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts to assist in the licensing process for medical marijuana back in 2013 now, 2013, 2014. Feels like a decade, but it actually was. (laughs) Um, So that was my first contact with cannabis was through background check company. And what I did with the background check company as well was a lot of compliance on a state level and on a federal level because not to get boring about background checks, but one of the big things you have to do when you report as a consumer reporting agency is you can only report certain things in certain states and federally, right? So you would have different reporting requirements based on where the employee is being hired and where they resided. So California is particularly tricky. Um, So what I had to do there was a lot of weighing different laws, regulations, reporting. So it kind of had this same level of investigation and understanding compliance when you go into cannabis. It's multifaceted. There isn't just one set of regs that you have to handle. Um, and I actually had met Adam Fine, our managing partner here in the Boston office, through my work with CSI and with cannabis businesses. Um, we got to talking and a lot, you know, we talked about what I had done and how that could work for, you know, a law firm that's working with compliance. Um, A lot of also what I did before this was investigative work. So I would do, you know, due diligence investigations um, and things like that, whether it's on an individual or a corporation. So that certainly helped as well, kind of being able to see like the broad spectrum and how to like dig things up basically on people. So I think one of the big components that people tend to get confused about, um, at least in my work, when I was in the legislature and then on the cannabis commission is what is the difference between the laws and the regs? Because when right. you just said that you had to understand both the laws and the regulations, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure people really understand that those are two different they are. sets yes. of documents, which right. have two different outcomes, I guess you can say. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's the law or like the statute that would basically say, listen, this regulatory body has to create regulations, but they have to stay within this framework. You know, this is what, needs to happen with transaction limits or, you know, the possession limits or when you do like advertising, uh, when you do, you know, licensing, if there can be license caps and, you know, there's that, there's a law, then there's regulations. And to further, you know, make this another level, what we see in cannabis a lot is there's medical regulations, there's adult use regulations, there are regulations that come out as emergency regulations. There is guidance. There is so many different levels and so many things that change so quickly. And in every state, that process for what that change looks like could be slightly different. Right. Um, so that's what makes compliance super complicated because there's also the unwritten law and that's the interpretation. Right. So 
the laws are actually passed by the legislatures, whether it's the, the state legislatures or your federal Congress, like that's where the laws come into play. Those statutes are harder to change, right? right. That takes a whole other vote of, of the elected officials. The regulations are sort of like the rules mm-hmm. that the regulatory bodies will create, which right. in the United States, you see a lot of states that have legalized adult use coming out with emergency provisions and then saying, okay, we'll, we'll take a look at this later mm-hmm. and then we're going to change this later. Um, and so it must be difficult to to wrap your head around what's in statute, which is probably never going to change. Right. What's in the r- rules, which is could change multiple times a year. Yeah. And then the interpretation part. So how does how does all that play into this poor business? That well, it, it makes compliance <laughs> difficult, right? But you basically have to realize coming in as a cannabis business when you come into a new market that you need to be flexible. And there are certain things, like you said, that are going to change or could change. So those are the things, the thing that comes to my mind right away is packaging and labeling. When you're into an emergency reg or a draft reg or operating on guidance, you don't go out and print hundreds of thousands of permanent packaging and labeling because yeah, it could change at any moment. You would lean towards you know being more conservative, having shorter print times, maybe taking a conservative approach on what is permissible, knowing that there could be even, you could drill down even more, or if there's consumer complaints that at any point that guidance could change. And sometimes within the guidance is where you get those interpretation changes. Some states are more transparent than others on what their interpretation are, interpretation is, but others, you know, you get one guidance document, it doesn't change for years, but swirling around in the industry is all different interpretations, whether it's the regulatory body or other cannabis businesses. So guidances are basically their documents that the regulatory body will come up with, usually based upon a lot of inquiries. Like if yes. you get a lot of inquiries surrounding advertising or packaging and labeling or um, environmental concerns or yeah. utilities, the, the bodies will usually come up with this, what they call guidance. So it's not necessarily language that's set in the regs. Right. It's just a, hey, here's a summary and this is what you need to expect. It almost, it's almost like a written interpretation. Right. Right. Like it, Typically, what it does is kind of say, this is what the regulations are. This is the way we're interpreting this particular requirement. And oftentimes, sometimes it's not even that much. Sometimes it's like, you know, how do I label tinctures, right? They're just pulling sometimes from the regs. What they're doing for a licensee is providing it all in one place. You no longer have to go look around in the regs. You don't have to worry that, oh, maybe there's like something tricky and like multiple servings just because it's not the packaging and labeling. You know, they're kind of putting it all in one place. It's fantastic for an operator to have this type of guidance that's publicly available. So with all of these documents and all these interpretations, mm-hmm. why is it so important to have someone who's really strong in compliance as part of your business, especially in the cannabis business where we don't have federal legalization, we don't have the the benefit of, mm-hmm. you know, guidance from federal agencies why is compliance something you really, really should pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, you should. There's a lot of reasons, but I mean, first <laughs> is it changes all the time, and it changes. It changes within a state. It changes state by state. Like we have certain circumstances where I see the exact language in two different states in the regs, and the guidance in one state is different than the interpretation or the guidance that comes out in the other. Granted, the regulatory language is exactly the same. If you're not staying up on what those changes are in the release of these documents, which Honestly, not every regulatory body gives you a, hey, heads up, brand new guidance, Right? you know, sends you an email, pay attention to this. You need to be on it. Those changes happen so fast. And there's usually not, there's in some states, they'll give you a time frame. It's like you have 30 days to comply. 
Some states, it's like, this guidance is effective today. Make the change. Um, and so that's a cost of the business, though. Like that, that's where your, so your example of the printing and labeling comes mm-hmm. in. You have 100,000 labels printed and you've only sold 10,000 pieces of product. What are you doing with the 90,000 extra labels? It's a great question. <laughs> that, that's, I mean, that's sometimes they're going to waste and so is all that money, um, which can be very detrimental to the business, bottom line. So then as people are starting their businesses, as you know, and we're here in the Northeast. And so we have got, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey. Yep. You know, I mean, to the north, we have Vermont, we have Maine, you know, New Hampshire's considering it. So there's a lot of activity here in the Northeast. Compliance, especially if you're a mom and pop shop, if you're not one of the multi-state operators, compliance could be costly to your business. Absolutely. Depending upon what a regulatory body does for enforcement action. Right. It's you know, you don't want to have to think of it like you're running scared and it's about like, oh, they're actually enforcing this or they're not, right? There's there's always the scary part is a fine. Enforcement action, public enforcement action, even if it's something that is minor or someone call it technicality, something in packaging labeling that is not a threat to public safety. You're still going to, you could have a fine, you could have a license suspension. And sometimes it's worse to have your name out there as publicly being an operator that's not compliant. And sometimes what happens too is those little things show the cracks in your business. You know, if you're missing something, some attention to detail that's small and maybe does not have a huge effect to public safety, there could be something underneath that's much worse. And that's typically what regulators will look at and they'll say, well, wait a minute, if you over, if you overlooked this piece of compliance, what else is going on underneath the surface? Um, there's a lot of compliance that's symptomatic. Um, you should be showing the regulator and you should be showing your business, the owners, the investors, and your team that you care about your business. And a lot of that is caring about compliance. So how is it that a business sort of interacts with their investigator or their enforcement team or whatever whatever term that the state has? How important is that? And how does that work? I mean, that relationship is single-handedly one of the most important you're going to have in a highly regulated industry. Like that, that relationship is so important, that transparency. And some of it is also understanding that their interpretation can change, right? So I have an investigator, let's say a business, and they go back to their team and they're talking about something and that someone brings something up and they're like, oh, you know what? Maybe I, you know, I overlooked something. The next time they come back and the next time they talk to you, you should be prepared to be flexible to understand their interpretation can change. Um, you know, that having that open dialogue, being transparent, being able to reach out with a phone call when you have a question is so important. And if you get off on the wrong foot, um, it's sometimes it can be really hard to come back and fix those relationships because what's they already kind of look at you like, maybe I can't trust you or you haven't shown me that you pay attention to the regulations. This is particularly true for people entering new states, you know? Oh. Well, because if I'm a New Jersey operator and I'm going into Rhode Island, but I'm taking my New Jersey understanding of the regulations and their interpretation, granted Rhode Island may have the exact same language and not understanding that their interpretation may be different. You could be put in a situation where, you know, you're saying, well, this is the exact same in New Jersey. This is the way we do it here to a Rhode Island regulator they really don't care how you do it in another state. What matters to them is that you understand compliance in their state, you respect their state, their structure, and their investigation team. And that must be why it's so important to have a compliance person as part of your team, whether 
they are embedded in the business or whether you have a consultant on the outside mm-hmm. that you can call to say, go through my business, tell me what's right and wrong, tell me what I need to fix and and help me move forward. Yeah, and really, you know, really being aware of, again, the specific regulations within the state, the interpretation within that state. But then on top of that, there's a lot of things that, you know, you read on the page and they're a little subjective. And what you usually use your own compliance team for an outside consultant in compliance is to say like, am I reading this right? Am I getting this right? Am I getting this right for my operation too? Because a lot of it is subjective, particularly in security. They'll say like, is a sufficient security? That's sufficient. What's varies, sufficient? Right, very <laughs> between state, investigator, operator, all of those things. So it's really being able to understand that those things can change. And I do find that my biggest thing that I see from what I do, because I come into outside, you know, I don't work there every day. I come in with a fresh set of eyes. I find the dust settles. Everything on compliance, be like, yeah, you know what? We were relabeling those, you know, that, you know, isopropyl alcohol that we use for cleaning. We were relabeling those as not for use on plants, but I guess it kind of fell to the wayside. It's like, I'm seeing this coming in fresh where you as a compliance manager may be inside there and you kind of walk by it every day and it's just something you don't see. So what are some of the most common compliance regulations that people overlook? Record keeping. Record keeping and documentation. And for me, you know, anybody who's worked with me will know that like I am strict reading of the regs. I am very, if let's say, like for example, in Massachusetts, when you do an inventory out, there's certain requirements you're supposed to document. One of them is summary of findings. If I'm looking at your inventory audit documentation and it says, you know, maybe it doesn't say summary, it says inventory outcome. I'm going to tell you to switch it to summary of findings because I want you to stay within that regulatory framework. And you don't want to be in a situation where you're trying to argue your interpretation of what summary of findings looks like. Like, Keep it simple. Go by what is in the regulations and have a full understanding of that. Because if you get caught in a situation where you're trying to argue with an investigator that it's compliant, why? Why couldn't you have just done it as summary of findings and not have to worry about this? Well, not to mention the investigators don't write the regs. Right. And I think that's where sometimes people confuse um, who they're actually going to complain to. It's, you know, and I know that, you know, as a former cannabis commissioner, I wrote the regs. Like we authored the regs and, and you know, I, I said on a podcast earlier what our um, situation was like, and it was five people, five cubicles, no staff. Mm -hmm. When I tell you no staff, I didn't know who answered the phone on my desk, right? right. So that's how new we were. Um, But when people would complain to investigators and they would say to us, oh, we're hearing complaints. Right. Some of the operators think investigators can change yeah, change right, the right, right. yeah <laughs> they can't. Um, they can't. They'd like know. to in some circumstances. Right. I've had some of my investigators say, why couldn't it just be X, Y, Z? And the answer is because, because the it time, is what it is, right? It is what it is. But I think that the evolution of the industry, and again, we don't have the benefit of federal government agency mm-hmm. support. So right. every state is on its own. Um, and what you see in a lot of things is what we call lift and shift, and is that states are just lifting regs out of one state, mm-hmm. shifting them over to their own. But like you said, the interpretation becomes different, and it really depends. I mean, it's difficult to say, but some regulatory bodies see differently the multi-state operators versus the mom and pops versus equity applicants mm-hmm. or, or legacy applicants, if you want to call them. Um, and there's a really big divide. Right state to state. Yeah, there certainly is. And then if with that, that lift and shift comp, you know, that whole 
understanding too, is that you may lift and shift one section and not another and not realize that now somewhere else there's a conflict with another part of the section. And then you go to the regulators, you go to the investigators and say, I, I don't, what's happening? Like, what is the outcome? And that's what's the most important thing. Back to your thing about how to communicate with your regulatory you know, oversight and your investigators, you need somebody to go through in those conflicts because they exist in the regulations. Maybe it's something that nobody ever thought about, a product type that nobody even contemplated at the time the regs were written. Right. It doesn't mean it's okay and it doesn't mean it's not, but go to the source, go to the person that's going to come knocking at your door, go to the person that's going to write, you know, your violation, your notice of deficiency. That's who you want to be able to turn to. And if you've, you know, had a bad relationship from the start, that can cause some serious problems. And I'm sure that pre-COVID versus now caused a whole host of issues for operators because you've got these very secure facilities where it's sometimes more difficult to get into than any any other place you've ever seen that is secure. And then COVID came and it was, you could do curbside. Right. And then COVID came and who could be in the car? Who was allowed to be in the car? Could they be under 21? Mm -hmm. Um, Could, you know, what was the protocol? How was the payment systems happening? So a lot of different things that people don't necessarily understand. Um, And the other thing too is payment systems. Mm -hmm. I mean- this isn't as simple as an ATM machine. Like you, you can't use a credit card. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so that has to be difficult for operators to comply and to also, you know, manage their taxes and, and everything else yeah. they have to manage. And that's why that compliance manager or outside, you know, compliance role is so important. Like you cannot stay on top of everything. Somebody needs to because you're not going to have a business to run, right? That's the way I always explain it is. I'm not trying to be gloom and doom, right? It's not, you're not going to get your license suspended for every tiny violation, right? But it could stack up, it could mount. And if people have this, don't buy into the culture of compliance, you know, your whole business kind of throws it to the wayside and you're no longer going to have a license. So you have to take it seriously. You have to take communication from your, you know, your investigators, your inspectors seriously, Um and I've got to think the money that goes into starting one of these businesses. I mean, I never opened a business, um, but the, the amount of capital it takes to open the businesses, you don't want something like compliance to be the thing that closes. Right, it. right. Exactly. And and that's just got to be difficult. So what do you see as some of the biggest obstacles regarding compliance? I mean, is it staffing levels? Is it, you know, are there enough people in the industry? Do you have to be part of a cannabis compliance industry to be good at this i mean you said your background you came from outside the cannabis world is there are there certain you know characteristics or certain skill sets that someone needs in compliance that maybe is cannabis related i mean yeah i mean i think the first part of your question was about you know what fights compliance right in my mind like why can it be difficult to comply um and i think operations and you know, the revenue driven concept will always be something you battle and a good compliance manager or somebody in compliance that you hire from the outside, what they're able to do is balance that. Find a way where you can meet in the middle, you can be compliant and operations still keeps going. The worst type of compliance professional you can have is someone that just says, nope, bye, can't do that. I'm out. You need to be a problem solver. And you also need to have the foresight to look around, right? So I may solve for one problem, but what did I create in two weeks from now? Three other problems. You need to be able to say, okay, I'm going to fix this problem. 
What do I need to do regarding notifications, documentation, and what did this just change? Who did it change it for? What type of, you know, in, does this affect inventory? Does this affect vehicles? Like what is the cost impact? What is the labor impact? And what is the compliance impact in every decision you make? Sometimes it's quick. You can run through that in 30 seconds. Oh, this should be fine. I don't see anything coming, right? You can run through that in 30 oh. seconds. <laughs> Give it to the poor. Think about the poor guy that's just opening. Like that's where I think it's important, like mentorship programs mm-hmm. and, and people that are doing, um, so you have, you know, equity programming that goes on yeah. in all these states, you know, technical assistance or people training, because I've got to think that you see things in the Massachusetts regulations that I don't see. And I wrote them yeah. Uh, because your trained eye is so different than everybody else's. Yeah. And I think to listening to the operator, listening to the person that's doing it. So what's unique about what the position that I do is that I'm able to go into these facilities, conduct these audits, hear from the people doing it. They're explaining, I'm saying, oh, well, this is the regulation. Like, well, I can't do this because of X. You know, I don't know that the regulators or even some of the investigators are able to hear some of this feedback that is so important to the way they interpret the regulations, the way they write the regulations and why guidance is needed. Because if they don't know about it, they're going to have a really hard time working with you and understanding. So for me, the unique position I'm in is I'm like a sponge. You know, I don't, if I'm talking about compliance, I'm not like, I'm only focused on compliance. I'm thinking about three steps ahead. I'm looking at like, you know, a box that I think is stacked too high. Is that immediately a compliance issue? No, but it certainly will be for OSHA or if it falls, now I've got a broken, you know, jar. Now that's got to go to waste. Now someone's got to track it. Now someone's got to tag it. It's it's five steps ahead of things that you don't think are compliance. Compliance touches everything. And I think when you mentioned OSHA, you know, it kind of pivots me to think of, you also need relationships with people outside of the cannabis regulatory body. You're still going to have that fire inspection. You're still going to deal with permitting at city hall. You're still going to have to deal with a local board when it comes to, you know, opening up the same way any business would open up. It's not cannabis specific. It's, and that's where maybe your compliance person has the ability to have those relationships and build those relationships. Exactly. And that just makes them that much stronger. Because every little piece of information they learn is so much more helpful to create like a broad spectrum compliance program. And that's probably one of the hardest things I see cannabis businesses struggle with is the concept that there are regulations outside of cannabis that you still need to comply with. Workplace safety. um, Occupancy levels. Occupancy. I mean, there are just so many different things that you don't even think about. It's just not food safety, GMP compliance. Like it's you know, the right say it's not food, you know, it's like, I get that, but there's still food safety requirements. Right. Um, and really understand that like, okay, great. You've mastered the cannabis stuff. You've got about 4,000 other sets of regulations that touch your business that you also need to get a grasp on. That's really hard for your, your CEOs, your owners. They can't do it all. Right. That's where that compliance manager comes in, takes care of the cannabis compliance. Somebody else is responsible for workplace safety. Somebody else is responsible for this, that, or the other thing. But as a team, collectively, you're creating that culture of compliance that isn't just what you think of as typical cannabis compliance. So how difficult is it? Um, I mean, you work in what? New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, probably Rhode Island, Pennsylvania. So you have multiple states up here in the Northeast mm-hmm. and you have to know the regs and you mm-hmm. have to know the rules and the guidances. Um, is it 
is it difficult to be in a position like yours where you have to remember which state you're, remember what train you took the state to? Right. I know you love transportation. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I do love myself the Amtrak. Um, it is difficult, but what, what it also does is it, you can learn lessons from other states. You know, you're not necessarily in a silo, right? Like I said, the language could be the same on a piece of paper. The interpretation can be different, but largely what you can do is use the lessons from other states and apply them, especially where you've got a less mature state. Like you can almost see ahead that like, oh, this is going to be a problem. They didn't think about this because I saw someone think about it in Massachusetts a year ago, which was already four years into the same set of regs or whatever that situation is. You are able to leverage other states, but it is not easy to balance those because those nuances are the difference between you looking not so great in front of an investigator and looking like, yep, of course, I know everything about, you know, your set of regulations. And I completely understand I'm on top of it. Like New Jersey CRC, you don't want to even between states using cannabis versus marijuana, you know, using yeah. different terms is so important. I would not want to, you know, offend any regulator or even an operator coming into coming in to do a compliance audit in their facility by not understanding their framework. Right. And the their, terminology is huge, huge, especially in the cannabis industry. And I think it's so hard for people, you know, cannabis comes to legalization, whether it's through the legislative process, through a ballot initiative, through citizens. Um, and there's such a, a, you know, a grasp of the, the idea of cannabis. And then when it becomes a real industry and then it has to fit into the framework of whatever state, mm-hmm. um, you know, any business fits in a framework of whatever state you're operating in. I can't imagine being a a multi-state operator with even right. two states, let alone multiples. Yeah. And you know, you're, again, you're going to have the more states you're in, the more fires you're going to have. Right. And they're all going to look a little bit different. Um, so really compliance is response, but it's just as much preparing for that response. And I, you said, what's, what's one of the biggest things you asked me before the obstacles, yeah. obstacles. And it's, to me, it's record keeping and really staying on top of that. You cannot, people will always start fantastic. Like I watch operators come in with a fantastic groundwork. It's six months, a year in, where this is where things start to fall apart. And it's not in their mind, nothing's falling apart. I'm doing great. I got sales, everything's swimming. But then you come in and you start looking at like inventory practices or, you know, oh, were you up to date on a change in like the pesticide rules? And they're like, no, I, I wasn't aware. I'm like, well, that's a huge difference. Right. Um, so we need to stay on top of those things. Um, I think that, you know, if you want to be on the edge also of a cannabis industry and one step ahead of your competitors, it's knowing compliance and knowing your opportunities are, you know, compliance is like, I'm just like the person who says no all the time, but that's not always what compliance is. There's, we know what the rule is. I have some operators that come like, I know the rule is this. And like, we know what the compliance requirement is. We want to get creative. We want to comply, but we want to be one step ahead of what somebody else is doing. That is the biggest challenge in a mature cannabis market is to stay ahead, but also make sure you're compliant because the first person to come up with something new is the first person that gets looked at very closely. And if there aren't regulations in the regs currently, right. there isn't language in the regs, you don't know if the next round is going to hurt you. Like right. they could include right. things that are in there. And if you're creating a new pathway, you're coming in, you're trying something new. You're, do, you're doing the first drive through in New Jersey, right? You need to think, you need to cover every part of the regs you can think of. Get that SOP done. Get your documentation done. Check your cameras. 
come and present to the regulator something that is so solid and so compliant and demonstrates, I know what I'm doing. And that regulator's going to look at you and go, all right, let's give it a try. We're watching you. And of course, like any regulation, the rug could be pulled up underneath you at any minute. Even though but, there could be human error, because that's just normal human always, interaction. And that's, again, one of the hard part about <laughs> compliance is we're not robots, right? So you could put the best policies and procedures in place. Nobody follows them. But what good are they? What, yeah. And that's what I think, you know, it's hard as people are opening up these businesses. And, and we hear a lot from um, different regulatory boards about how there needs to be programming and there needs to be um, all of these things. It's literally um, starting to say, how do we do this, you know, in a way that makes sense, but in a way that's also what we need in our state. I right. mean, you know, Massachusetts, for instance, we had to deal with the islands. Yeah, that's it, true. It's federally illegal to take it across the air and the water, yeah. right? And so that's where I think at the same time, you have to be very cognizant. Um, as we wrap up, what are your... Uh, What's like, a, you know, one piece of advice that you would give to operators and, and you know, just to tell them what they could do to make sure they're compliant or the types of services people provide that they could. Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing to stay compliant is stay alert and stay aware. Check guidance documents. Like I, the best tip I think I try to give to everybody I work with is when you wake up in the morning, instead of going on Facebook or Instagram or find make it number three or whatever you're going to do. You go to your regulator's website, you check for any new releases, any press releases, any new guidance, anything that is going to tell you that something's about to change. If your regulator offers a webinar, watch it. You know, this is your opportunity because it's also a chance for you to kind of get ahead of what's coming. If they're talking about a topic, it's going to affect you. So being on those things and not, you know, not getting so bogged down in the day-to-day and knowing that like you have to be alert and aware is so important or have a channel or have somebody that makes you alert and aware. If you can't afford to hire somebody solely for compliance, use outside resources. Um, or, you know, you can also have like management take on some of that role. I haven't found that be successful because managers have a lot on their plate anyway. Right. Um, the most compliant places I see, they have a designated compliance person or they, you know, have outside compliance help and they really create and care about compliance and they make sure everybody in the facility understands and takes it seriously. There's no second chances on a violation of an SOP, right? It's just not, they take, they really do take it very seriously. As they should. I mean, you're handling a product that's still federally illegal and until that changes, we, there's certain procedures that have to be in place. Yeah. Um, and obviously someone like you in your position sees a lot of things, I'm sure your occupational hazard is that you can walk into any facility and just spot yeah. what's wrong. You yeah. can spot the problems. Not that you're being cynical, but that yeah. just it is what it is. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to sit with yeah. me today. I know how busy you are. You came from an inspection today and mm-hmm. you have a million more later. So yep. thank you Got so it. much for all of this. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, leave us a five-star review. Make sure that you share this episode on your social media and tag us in the Instagram stories. You can find us wherever you go on social media. Just look up Cannabis Business Minds. Have an idea for the show or something that you want to talk about? Shoot us an email at podcast at cannabisbusinessminds.com.